Hey, are you into werewolves, mad scientists, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Oh, definitely, Gavin. I mean, say what you will about the American talk show host. They can't hold a candle to Jimmy Savile. Yes. The following podcast contains... Oh, ah, what the f*** did you do that for? Hey, that was... Don't swear. What are we? Werewolves, not swearwolves. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you ignored Johnny's hand-picked successor and just gave it to the guy with the bigger chin, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 435 from the home office in Howard Beats Queens edition of the show. It's part three of our winter series, Late Night with Dave Bledsoe, where we're talking about the guy who should have gotten the Tonight Show, David Letterman. What the hell are you thinking? Podcast is brought to you by our classic sponsor, the Mark Tweaky Tipman. You'll never sleep again, man. Podcast. Fans of Tweaky's Yuba City, California public access television late night TV show for meth heads and meth makers will find Tweaky's podcast for insomniacs, night owls, and shift workers a must listen. Tweaky regales his listeners with stories of the wild things he saw cooking, selling, and taking methamphetamine. Tweaky's clean now, but his stories are so, so dirty. So congratulations to Tweaky for the new start, and listen to You'll Never Sleep Again, man, wherever you get your podcast. My next guest is a young performer, a comedian who was a regular on the recent Mary Tyler Moore Variety Series. He appears regularly here in town, here in town at the Comedy Store, and uh, will be hosting the Rose Bowl Parade for television on the 1st of January. Would you welcome, please, David Letterman. David... <laughs> Thank you, thank you, thank you. How many of you folks here have never been to a TV studio before? Applaud if you've never been to one of these things. Okay. How many of you, how many of you have been here before? Applaud if you have been here before. Okay. All right, now how many of you who have never been here before today are here with somebody who has been here before? Applaud. Okay, now listen carefully. This gets a little confusing at this point. Huh? How many of you out of that last group are in this country illegally? Could we just hear? Great, fine. Looking for yard work, I'll bet. Well, nice to have you here. Chances are, I was always going to be named Dave. I honestly don't give a shit. I know this, but I'm going to tell you why anyway. David is my dad's name. So there was a pretty good chance I was going to have some permutation of David in my name when I was born. But it probably would not have the suffix I carry were it not for... A happenstance of fate. Your mom does not hate you. I mean, she probably wasn't that fond of me while she was pushing me out, but after that, things were great. The fate accompli, which gave me my father's exact name, was the day of my birth, as it was exactly 20 years to the day after the day upon which he was born. Thus, it seemed only fitting that I be a junior. You poor bastard. I, I love my name. I love my father. I just don't love being a junior. You know, because it's so lame. Look, there's nothing wrong with being a junior. And it's wrong is when you're in child, your entire childhood, some relative will insist on calling you junior. 
And look, I was born in rural southeastern Tennessee, and that's an area rife with dudes named Junior. Every goddamn one of them, a fat guy dressed in dirty denim overalls, missing a substantial number of teeth. And even from a young age, I had no desire to join their redneck ranks. You're a redneck. I, I perfectly am perfectly happy to be a redneck. I just didn't want to be a fat redneck with no teeth and a limited vocabulary. Now, if they weren't calling me Junior, then they were using a cutesy diminutive name of my name, like Davy Junior or Little Davy, or worse. They would use Little and then my middle name because my father was often referred to by his middle name, even though he fucking hated it too. Uh, what name? Ah, that's not really relevant to the story I'm telling you because I'm telling you why they call me Dave. What's your middle name? Again, it's not really relevant to the story I'm telling you. So you're ashamed of my name. (sighs) Okay. Fine. It's Ronald. Good God, Ronald. I fucking hated being called Little Ronald, or worse, Ronald Jr., because that wasn't my name. It was David. When I got old enough, I shortened it down to the much cooler, more relaxed Dave because Dave Dave, Dave? is a cool, fun guy you want to hang out with and buy drinks for. The kind of guy you can depend on to have a lighter bottle opener condom joke. A junior is just a guy with his dad's name, but a Dave is a guy with his dad's name and his more laid back version of his dad. So anyway, don't name your kids junior and just make them grow up in the shadow of their dad They'll be lacking self-esteem, and that'll lead them to hold hosting a podcast in their later years where they tell stories about how their childhood was just less than perfect. I'm just saying is all. Why bring any of this up? Well, as usual, it's the intro to the show, and we try to keep a certain consistency. But also, I'm talking this week about a Dave who was not a junior. David Letterman! Long-time listeners of this show... We don't have any of those might remember a little baby podcaster, Dave, discussing Letterman's retirement back on episode number eight in May of 2015, when I said, quote, Dave is not of our generation. He's firmly in the boomer camp age-wise, but his comedy and career is symbolic for a lot of us Gen Xers. We found Letterman during his rise to prominence. Our parents closed their night with the particularly baby boomer 60s, 70s feel of Carson. And while no Gen Xers concerns with such things would ever diminish the contributions of Carson's to comedy, Dave was ours. He gave us the unique voices that defined our generation, musically, comedically, and as actors, before they landed on the mainstream Carson stage. He also gave us voices that would never land on the panel with Johnny, Doc, and Ed. I mean, can you imagine Carson turning over his entire show to Warren Zevon? If you were into anyone or anything pop culture in the 80s and 90s, you probably saw it first on Letterman. I mean, except for like those uber cool things you probably never heard of and wouldn't be into unless you were like in the know, man. And you know what? A lot of times Dave would have those people on his show too. Letterman, at least the pre-CBS Letterman, was into doing some weird shit. He had no problem taking advantage of the late night, late night slot. How many of us got into trouble dropping watermelons from roofs? No one else? That was just me? Okay, well, where else would you see Larry Bud Melman? And Dave was quirky, edgy, strange, an outsider with a slightly mean sense of humor. There was something about Dave that was almost subversive in his style, a sly fuck you threaded through almost everything he did, unquote. I do have the original audio of that episode, but then I went back and listened to it, and I realized... Sound like shit. And no one should listen to any episode of the show that's not 
in the upper triple digits. So let's talk about David Letterman. Born April 12, 1947 in Indianapolis to Harry and Dorothy Letterman. He was a normal kid for the time and place. There was no show business in the family, though his father Harry was always quick with a joke and the life of a party. Unlike you. Fuck you, I am the blast of the right kind of party. The kind of a party where their finger food is jello shots, okay? David went to Ball State University. <laughs> Graduated in 1969 from the Department of Radio and Television Studies. Again, I should have been born at a much earlier time. He missed going to Vietnam with the good fortune of having a, draft, a high draft lottery number. He started out naturally on campus radio, WBST, but because of... And I swear to God, I'm not making this up. According to IndianaPublicRadio.org, quote, he was later fired for his irreverent treatment of classical music, unquote. Classic Dave. <laughs> he was uh, hired by a new radio station on campus, WAGOAM 570, and worked there until his graduation. Dave credited local television host Paul Dixon, the host of the Paul Dixon Show. How original as his inspiration for becoming a television talk show host. When Letterman saw Dixon doing his thing, he decided, I don't know, that looks pretty easy, or at least that's my interpretation of what he thought, and decided to pursue a career in television. It was the 70s. <laughs> and you could still do things like that. But Dave did not become a TV talk show host. Instead, he did the weather. I'd watch the same holds true for Iowa and uh, flooding all over. In fact, uh, portions of uh, Indiana at one time yesterday were under a flash flood warning, but all of that seems of little importance once you take a look at the cloud cover photograph made earlier of the United States today, and I think you'll see that once again we've fallen to the prey of political dirty dealings. And right now you can see what I'm talking about. The higher-ups have removed the border between Indiana and Ohio, making it one giant state. Personally, I'm against it. <laughs> In an interview in Playboy magazine done in the 1990s, we hear the tale. Quote, after graduation, Channel 13 hired him full time. He hosted a Saturday morning kids show and the late night movie and served as a news anchor. But it was his stint as a weatherman that gave viewers a glimpse of Letterman's true talent. He once reported that the city was being pelted with hail the size of canned hams and enthusiastically congratulated a tropical storm when it was upgraded to hurricane status, unquote. In 1975, Letterman gave up the glamour of being a small-town weatherman and moved, his moved with his wife and several fraternity brothers from Indianapolis to where folks in Indiana go to make it in show business. To Fort Wayne, Indiana? Oh, yeah, ask anyone, they'll tell you. Fort Wayne, funniest place this side of Evansville. No, I'm kidding. Dave moved to Los Angeles. He packed up his wife, his scattering of his belongings into a pickup truck, and drove west. Side note, all the articles I read wanted me to know, so they also wanted you to know that Dave, at least in 2012, still owned that truck and that it was once stolen by Johnny Carson as a goof. I am glad to hear that. I thought you might be. In Los Angeles, Dave began working the comedy circuit, which in the mid-1970s was the hottest circuit for up-and-coming young comedians. I mean, it wasn't Fort Wayne, but what can you do? Letterman landed a spot at the legendary comedy store at 8433 Sunset Boulevard on the Sunset Strip. The comedy store is worthy of its own episode, but for now, suffice it to say, the comedy store and Mitzi Shore, the club's iconic owner, launched the careers of an 
astonishing number of comedians who became household number household names in the 80s and 90s. It was during a set at said comedy store that Dave was discovered by none other than Jimmy Walker. Jimmy was, of course, famous for his stint as JJ on Norman Lear's Good Times. Hello. <laughs> Aren't you glad you let your fingers do the walking? Because you got kid dynamite doing the talking. If we lucky, we got him. And parlayed that into a kind of a godfather status at the time in the Los Angeles comedy scene. And after seeing Dave perform, Jimmy hired Letterman to write for him. Walker wrote about it in his book, Dino Might, as quoted on Slate.com. Quote, I first saw him at the store, not long after he drove out from Indianapolis in 1975, his red truck and sporting a bushy reddish beard. I thought he had some good quirky ideas, but also felt he probably was not going to be a tremendous stand-up. He was too uncomfortable on stage in the stand-up format. Maybe, I thought, he could be a host of a talk show or a game show. George Miller, who roomed with Dave, was another comic I had become friends with and vouched for him, saying, this is George now, I think this guy is funny. And when I asked Dave to join our writers' meetings, he was very happy. Our sessions were becoming legendary, and he admired many of those in the room, none more than Leno. He was thrilled just to be around those guys, unquote. This set Dave on the path of a comedy writer and host in Hollywood. His first big gig would be writing for none other than the Columbia Broadcasting System on a summer replacement series. It was a variety show, and God help us, this is what it was. The Starland Vocal Band. Thinking of you, working up my Recognize that hit? Well, tonight, the group that made it famous travels from Washington, D.C. to Malibu, California, giving concerts and performing with some of America's brightest comedians. You guessed it, gang. Behind me, a crack production crew. It's a Sunday night. What do you got to do anyway? So, gentlemen, start your tape machines. Yeah. This was television in the 70s, folks, particularly during the summer hiatus. You had reruns. And they had the Starland Vocal Band's variety show. It was a dark time. This led to, according to Wikipedia, quote, him hosting a 1977 pilot for a game show called The Riddlers, which was never picked up, and co-starred in the Barry Levinson production comedy special Peeping Times, which aired in January 1978. Later that year, Letterman was cast as a cast member on a Mary Tyler Moore's variety show titled Mary. He made a guest appearance on Mork and Mindy, as a parody of the Est leader, Werner Erhard. That's another show that's going to have to be done. I just haven't gotten to it yet. And did appearances on game shows such as the $20,000 Pyramid, The Gong Show, and Hollywood, Hollywood Square's Password and Liars Club, as well as the Canadian cooking show Celebrity Cooks. And then he did talk shows such as 90 Minutes Live, The Mike Douglas Show, and he was screen tested for the lead role in the 1980 film Airplane a role that eventually went to Robert Hayes, unquote. I just want you to stop here for a second. You've all seen Airplane. If you're listening to this show, you definitely have seen Airplane. So take a moment with me, pod friends, to ponder how different things might have been if it had been David Letterman delivering such deadpan lines like this. Nervous? Yes. First time. No, I've been nervous lots of times. 
I'm not saying it would have been better or worse, but it was different. No, I'm actually saying it might have been much worse. I love Dave, but he's no Ted Stryker. Identify yourself and give me a position. The name's Stryker. I'm sitting down and facing front. Why would you want to know that? The biggest thing that come out of Dave's time in the trenches was his coming to the attention of the bookers for the biggest name in comedy and late night television. We talked about him last week. The Night Show with Johnny Carson. His first appearance, which we played at the top of the show, led to Dave becoming a regular on Carson and to Carson becoming a personal friend and mentor to David Letterman. Letterman has maintained that without Johnny, he would not have lived the professional life he did without him. And Johnny loved Dave, the best of all of his stable of young comedians, and had big plans for him. Big plans that would have that would be treacherously derailed through the perfidy of another so-called friend of Dave's. But we're not there yet. Going back to Playboy, quote, as his career took off, his marriage fizzled. He became romantically involved with the comedy writer Meryl Marco and found success as a Tonight Show guest. In fact, he was so successful that he quickly became a substitute host. NBC, realizing it had a talk show talent on its hand, gave him a morning show. Both he and Marco won Emmys for it, but no one was watching and the show was canceled. Still, NBC was not about to let him go. It paid him to sit around until a new show came along, unquote. By the dawn of the 1980s, cable television was spreading through this fair nation. And new stations were cropping up to fill the empty air offered by the expansion of channels from the original three. And while this was this expanding market was in no way threatening to said big three networks, they operated on that fundament of capitalism that money never made is in fact money lost. And they began looking for cheap ways to bring that lost money that was never there in the first place into their pockets. One of the places they were not making any money was that dead air after Carson. So, they created shows to air after Carson. Originally, it was Tom Snyder, whose show was called The Tomorrow Show. Well, technically, uh, technically... It was actually tomorrow, since it was actually after midnight, but most people didn't think of it like that, since the people watching hadn't actually gone to bed yet. To them, it was actually still today, but you couldn't name it today because NBC already had a Today Show, which, of course, would air tomorrow morning. Come with it. Yes, get over there. What NBC wanted was to put another Carson on on the air after Carson because Carson was a cash cow for the network. So tomorrow would be moved back later, closer to what most people actually considered tomorrow than what it was when it was on the air because most people still thought of that as today, but not the show today because they were still in today just very, very, very late in today. Oh, for Christ's sake. Sorry, I, I think I got stuck in a loop there. Now, Tom Snyder, who was a solid talk show host, wanted nothing to do with this because his show would now be on so late that even the insomniacs had passed out, so he pieced the fuck out and his spot went to this new show. The Late, aptly named enough, Late Night with David Letterman, which kicked off at 12.30 a.m., which was technically tomorrow. Don't start that again. Sorry. And so, February 1st, 1982, the world was given the gift of The Late Show with David Letterman when Larry Bud Melman, I mean, his real name was Calvin DeForest, but I'll always know him as Larry Bud, stepped onto the stage in, at 30 Rock and NBC and introduced 
the very first Late Night with David Letterman show. Good evening. Certain NBC executives feel it would be a little unkind to present this show without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold a show featuring David Letterman, a man of science who sought to create a show after his own image without reckoning upon God. It's one of the strangest tales ever told. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you don't care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. From that very first show, viewers got the impression that this show was going to be a, a little different. Cool. Kind of weird. I mean, Larry Bud who would become a feature on Letterman, the dancing girls, and everything about the vibe was different than Carson, wildly different than the rather staid Tom Snyder, and it left viewers with some burning questions. Who the fuck is this guy? And also... What the fuck am I watching? And over the next 11 years, they would find out that the weirdness was getting weirder and also funnier. This was not The Tonight Show. This was something different, something edgier, something funnier, and most of all... Something younger than Johnny Carson. And so it was Dave joined by his band leader, Paul Schaefer, Schaefer, who would stay with him until retirement and the world's most dangerous man would stretch the boundaries of what one could do with a television show. He and his producers figured out before the first show ever taped that NBC was paying zero fucks to their late night offering. And that provided opportunities. I mean, don't get me wrong. Letterman was a professional and he knew the hard lines. No drugs, no nudity, no cussing. But there was a gray zone, and that's where Late Night played. From a 2011 Rolling Stone article, quote, Outside Studio 6A in New York's Rockefeller Center, it was the middle of summer. But inside the cave-like 180-seat home of the brand-new show called Late Night with David Letterman, Calvert DeForest, a part-time file clerk at a Brooklyn rehab clinic, better known to his viewers as Larry Bud Millman, was preparing to read the beloved children's poem, The Night Before Christmas, to a group of excited kids. In the five months since its debut, February 1982, Late Night had gleefully mocked any number of sacred cows, from inane celebrity talk show banter to NBC executives whom Letterman called vegetables on the very first show. Tonight's target was insufferable holiday TV specials. But when DeForest began reading from the version of The Night Before Christmas he'd pulled off a prop shelf, he immediately really realized it was in the long, wrong language. It was a night before Christmas. Not a creature was stirring. Not even a mouse. Oh. Now I gotta read Spanish. Je aves Not a creature with story, not even a mouse. Oh, God. Oh, my God, he stammered. I have to speak Spanish now? He tried to ad-lib. Not a creature was stirring, but not for long. I don't know what to do, he blurted helplessly. The camera cut to Letterman, standing at the side of the stage, watching the disaster unfold. He made an exaggerated, self-mocking gesture of wiping the sweat from his brow. Maybe Late Night had finally done it. TV's edgiest show had self-destructed. 
Barbara Gaines, a bookish 23-year-old production assistant who was supposed to ensure that the right prop wound up in DeForest's hands, thought the train wreck was hilarious, but she and one of her coworkers also knew they were in trouble. Sure enough, producer Barry Sand immediately called them into his office and started screaming at them. Then Letterman popped into the office and said, Hi, girls! He exclaimed, flashing his gap-toothed grin. That was amazing! The thought of airing such a calamitous skip would be unthinkable on network TV. But a few nights later, on <laughs> late nights, Christmas in July, a national audience watched just that. A confused, pear-shaped, 60-year-old man completely flubbing holiday classic as a group of bewildered children looked on, unquote. This was the kind of shit Letterman did on the regular. I mean, in addition to the monologues, the guest interlaced between them were skits that were just loaded with doses of surrealism. Some of them came from Letterman's short-lived daytime show, like Stupid Pet Tricks or Viewer Mails, but others were just shit dreamed up by Dave and the writers. Things like Larry Budd or the Monkey Cam. But in September of 1985, a new bit was added to the show. It was just a silly thing to do, and they were probably going to move on with it, but it resonated with the audience, and it became a trademark of Letterman. So because these things are, are so, so popular and such solid network television programming material, we've decided tonight, now comes the joke, we've decided tonight, <laughs> see, all of that is the setup. Here comes the joke. We're going to start our own top ten list, and tonight, I think we got a pretty good one. Tonight <clears throat> will be uh, late night's top ten words that almost rhyme with peas. Okay. Number ten, we have heats. Number nine is rice. Number eight is moss. Number seven, we have ties. Well, we, you, Wait, it's a little late. What, what happened? We were going to score this whole thing for you. This was a little drum roll. Yeah. Where now I lost my place. Where were we? Oh, number seven is ties. Number Number six is needs. Number five is lens. Number four is ice. Number three is kind of a surprise, nurse. Number two, we're getting very close now, is leaks. And the number one word that almost rhymes with peas, according to our poll, is meats. Yeah, okay, not everything is great the first time you do it, or the first hundred times you do it. Again, don't listen to any of these shows that are basically before episode 100, but... This, too, was part of the Letterman mystique. Sometimes the jokes that didn't land were funnier as Dave would grimace his way through them. The top tens were one of those things. They became more frequent and funnier as the show went on until they became the reason to tune into Letterman. And in an age before social media, a particularly good top ten list would be reprinted in papers around the country and shared around the office and producing everyone who, who was anyone that thought they were funny were doing some kind of variation of a top 10 list for their friends, whether their friends wanted them to or not. I look like this. This caused some confusion. Going back to Rolling Stone, quote, the reviews were mixed. Much of Letterman's first week did not gel. The Los Angeles Times scoffed. But the show drew 1.5 million viewers, 30% more than had tuned in for Tom Snyder. The staff was elated from the first night 
it didn't feel tentative, recalled the producer. It felt like we were finally in the right spot at 12.30 where it made sense. In a sign of things to come, not on the only one not thrilled was the host. Dave, could see, you could see all the flaws in the first shows. You usually forget a show immediately. Dave doesn't. In a practice that would become routine and fuel his self-flagellation, Letterman began watching each show after it aired and dissecting what worked and what didn't, unquote. And look, I, I'm no different. I listen to these shows all the time. I listen to them over and over again, trying to figure out why they're not very good. Sorry, Jeremy says I'm not supposed to say things like that anymore, but we're friends here. We all know the truth. This critical reluctance, however, would not last long. The show would bag his first Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing and Variety Comedy or Music Program in 1983 for its 82 seasons. It would go on to win the Emmy again in 84, 85, 86, and 1990. In 1991, the show would win the prestigious Peabody Award for Excellence in Broadcasting. Quoting the citation as it is, as it is listed on Wikipedia, quote, once a television leaks wasteland, late night has become a day part of increased interest to programmers, performers, and viewers. In the last 10 years, one show has moved to the position of leader in late night television in creativity, humor, and innovation. That program is Late Night with David Letterman. As one member of the Peabody board remarked, David Letterman is a born broadcaster. He is a savvy co-executive producer, and along with co-executive producer Jack Rollins, producer Robert Morton, and director Hal Gurney, and musical director Paul Schaefer, Mr. Letterman has surrounded himself with exceptional talent and given them the go-ahead to experiment with television medium. Particularly noteworthy is the work of head writer Steve O'Donnell and his talented staff. Together, the late-night team manages to take one of the TV's most conventional and least inventive forms of the talk show and infuse it with freshness and imagination. For television programming, which is at its best, it is evocative of the greats. From your show of shows to the Steve Allen show to the Ernie Kovacs show, a Peabody is awarded to Late Night with David Letterman, unquote. Look, I could spend another half hour talking about all the wild things that Letterman did on Late Night. But this series is already straining my will to live, so let's get to the thing. The show kept decent ratings and even gained a small margin after Carson when late-night Gen X viewers, the coveted demographic at the time, would stay up late to see what Dave was up to tonight. Oh, he's crazy. The critics loved him. The audiences loved him. Celebrities loved to be on his show. Well, most of them anyway. There were some exceptions that could again be their own show but particularly johnny carson loved him he was he loved him the best and when johnny was ready to retire everyone assumed that dave would just move up to the tonight show when johnny left there was one group of people that did not love david letterman a group of people that david letterman had mocked ridiculed and flaunted and for all his independence based on his prestige and ratings the people that Dave referred to as vegetables on his very first show, you know, the... The execs. They did not love Dave. So, despite Carson's stated preference and Letterman's strong past presence, NBC went in a uh, different direction. The Tonight Show's executive producer at the time, Ted Lasali, told the Archive of American Television this. Well, oh, when... 
NBC announced that Jay Leno was going to be his replacement, uh, which was, for many reasons, and I'll try to give you a few, Dave was always anti-NBC management and would say terrible things about NBC vice presidents on the air. And Dave was very uncooperative about doing charity events that NBC asked him to do. And Dave was his own guy who didn't like to play ball and could make trouble. And I, as a friend, would try and steer him in the right direction, but I wasn't always successful. So join us next week when we talk in depth about how that all went down and how a shitty little weasel slipped into the chicken coop to take over Dave's rightful place on The Tonight Show. Like Jay Leno. Of course, we all know that Dave moved to CBS in 1992. He had a long and successful run as the host of late, The Late Show with David Letterman. He battled for top spot with Leno for 13 years. He won some, lost some. He stayed there until 2015 when he retired to almost as much fanfare as his mentor, Johnny Carson. And if you absolutely need to hear my thoughts on that, well, you can always go back and listen to episode eight of this podcast, but I seriously don't recommend it. These days, Letterman is happily retired. He does some stuff, interviews, popping up on some modern late night shows, and generally enjoying being an elder statesman of television. I could have told you about all the horrible things that David Letterman did. I probably should have told you about them, but we all have our failings, and one of mine is pretending that David Letterman, a man I personally admire, didn't do the shitty things that he did. So sue me! Lock me up! We all make these little compromises with the people we admire, but God damn it, the man gave us Larry Bud Melman. Let's take a look at that now, ladies and gentlemen. Larry Bud Melman in action over the past 365 days. And that is it for our show this weekend for part three of our winter series. Oh, pod friends. We're finally there. Finally. Get to talk about the guy I set up five weeks to talk shit about in the first place. You're a small petty, you're a small petty man. I'm not going to deny it, but at least I didn't spend my career punching down on my jokes, unlike a certain host of The Tonight Show. Okay, yes, yeah. Most of them did it, but Lena was the worst. Speaking of the worst, it wouldn't be the worst thing you could do to rate and review the show so other people can find us and listen. I mean, not as bad as a backstabbing a friend to get a TV show gig. Kick us a dollar at patreon.com slash what the hell podcast. All the money we raise goes to Gavin's jokes joke writing fund. I just give him the money if he laughs at my jokes and he has to make me believe that he finds them funny. He really does. Do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing credits. Otherwise, yeah, he's going to cut my budget for tossing watermelons off the roof of my apartment building. I mean, I tell him that we recorded for YouTube, but really, I do it just for me. And so for me, Dave, going to find my baby, going to hold her tight, going to grab some afternoon delight. Let's so producer thinking of you is working up my appetite, looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Oh my God! Is this is about sex, isn't it? Evan and all the fictional workers at the home office at Sioux City, Iowa. We want to say, my God, they really gave Starland Vocal Band their own variety show, and yet I don't have a variety show. What the hell were they thinking?
And we'll see you all next week to wrap up the Winter Series. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. She's banging Leno. She's having an affair with Leno.